Chapter Eight of Nan Sherwood at Pine Camp. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Andrus. Nan Sherwood at Pine Camp by Annie Rowe Carr. Chapter Eight. Two Important Happenings. It happened, however, that Mr. Sherwood did not go to Chicago to work in the machine shop. Something happened before the week was out that quite put his intention aside. Indeed, Nan declared that two important happenings just then changed the current of affairs at the little cottage on Amity Street, and that she had a principal part in the action of the first of these unexpected happenings. It was lovely skating on Norway Pond, and both Nan and her chum, Bess Harley, were devoted to the sport. Nan had been unable to be on the ice Saturdays because of her home tasks, but when her lessons were learned she was allowed to go after supper. It happened to be just at the dark of the moon this week that kept many off the ice, although the weather was settled and the ice was perfectly safe. Sometimes the boys built a bonfire on Woody Point, with refuse from the planing mill, and that lit up a good bit of the ice. But once out on the pond, away from the shadows cast by the high banks, the girls could see well enough. They were both good skaters, and, with arms crossed and hands clasped, they swung up the middle of the pond in fine style. "'I just love to skate with you, Nan,' sighed Bess ecstatically. You move just like my other self. We're Siamese twins. We strike out together perfectly. Oh, my dear, I don't see whatever I am to do if you refuse to go to Lakeview with me. Nan could scarcely keep from telling Bess of the wonderful new fortune that seemed about to come to her, but she was faithful to her home training and only said, Don't fret about it, honey. Maybe something will turn up to let me go. "'If you'd only let my father pay your way,' insinuated Bess. "'Don't talk of that. It's impossible,' said Nan decisively. "'It's a long time yet to fall. Maybe conditions will be different at home. A dozen things may happen before school opens in September.' "'Yes, but they may not be the right things,' sighed Bess. She could not be too melancholy on such a night as this, however.' It was perfectly quiet, and the arch of the sky was like black velvet pricked out with gold and silver stars. Their soft radiance shed some light upon the pond, enough at least, to show the girl chums the way before them as they skimmed on toward Powerton Landing. They had left a noisy crowd of boys behind them, near the stamp factory, mostly mill boys and the like. Bess had been taught at home to shrink from association with the mill people, and that is why she had urged Nan to take this long skate up the pond. Around the Tilbury end of it they were always falling in with little groups of mill boys and girls, whom Bess did not care to meet. There was another reason this evening for keeping away from the stamp factory, too. The manager of the big shop had hired a gang of ice-cutters a few days before, and had filled his own private ice-house. The men had cut out roughly outlined square of the thick ice, 
sawed it into cakes, and pulled it to shore, and so to the sheds and the manager's ice-house. It was not a large opening in the ice, but even if the frost continued, it would be several days before the new ice would form thickly enough to bear again over that spot. Elsewhere, however, the ice was strong, for all the cutting for the big ice-houses had been done long before and near the landing. The lights of Powerton Landing were twinkling ahead of them as the two friends swept on up the long lake. The wind was in their faces, such wind as there was, and the air was keen and nippy. The action of skating, however, kept Nan and Bess warm. Bess in her furs, and Nan in her warm tam-o'-shanter and the muffler Momsey had knitted with her own hands, did not mind the cold. The evening train shrieked out of the gap and across the long trestle just beyond the landing, where it halted for a few seconds for passengers to embark or to leave the cars. The train was from Chicago, and on Monday Papa Sherwood expected to go to that big city to work. The thought gave Nan a feeling of depression. The little family in the Amity Street cottage had never been separated for more than a day since she could remember. It was going to be hard on Momsey, with Papa Sherwood away, and Nan in school all day. How were they going to get along without Papa Sherwood coming home to supper and doing the hard chores? Bess awoke her chum from these dreams. "'Dear me, Nan, have you lost your tongue all of a sudden? Do say something, or do something.' "'Let's race the train down the pond to Tilbury,' proposed Nan instantly. The lights of the long coaches were just moving out of the station at the landing. The two girls came about in a graceful curve, and struck out for home at a pace that even the train could not equal. The rails followed the shore of the pond on the narrow strip of lowland at the foot of the bluffs. They could see the lights shining through the car windows all the way. The fireman threw open the door of his firebox to feed the furnace, and a great glare of light and a shower of sparks spouted from the smokestack. The rumble of the wheels from across the ice seemed louder than usual. "'Come on, Bess,' gasped Nan, quite excited. "'We can do better than this. Why, that old train will beat us!' For they were falling behind. The train hooted its defiance as it swept down toward Woody Point. The girls shot in toward the shore, where the shadow of the high bluff lay heavily upon the ice. They heard the boys' voices somewhere below them, but Bess and Nan could not see them yet. They knew that the boys had divided into sides and were playing old-fashioned hockey. Shinny on your own side, as it was locally called. Above the rumbling of the train they heard the crack of the shinny-stick against the wooden block, and the zzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzz
"'He's in!' Nan and Bess heard the boys yelling. Then a man's voice took up the cry. "'He'll be drowned! Help! Help!' "'That's old Peter Newkirk!' gasped Anne, squeezing Bess's gloved hands tightly. "'He's night watchman at the stamp works, and he has only one arm. He can't help that boy!' The youngsters, who had been playing hockey so recklessly near the thin ice, were not as old as Nan and Bess, and the accident had thrown them into utter confusion. Some skated for the shore, screaming for ropes and fence-rails. Others tried to get away from the danger-spot themselves. None did the first thing to help their comrade who had broken through the ice. "'Where are you going, Nan?' gasped Bess, pulling back. "'You'll have us both in the water, too.' "'We can save him. Quick!' returned her chum eagerly. She let go of Bess and unwound the long muffler from about her own neck. "'If we could only see him,' the girl said over and over, and then a brilliant idea struck Nan Sherwood, and she turned to shout to old Peter Newkirk on the shore, "'Peter! Peter! Turn on the electric light sign! Turn it on so we can see where he's gone in!' The watchman had all his wits about him. There was a huge electric sign on the stamp works roof, advertising the company's output. The glare of it could be seen for miles, and it lit up brilliantly the surroundings of the mill. Peter Newkirk bounded away to the main door of the works. The switch that controlled the huge sign was just inside that door. Before Nan and Bess had reached the edge of the broken ice, the electricity was suddenly shot into the sign, and the whole neighborhood was alight. "'I see him! There he is!' gasped Nan to her chum. "'Hold me tight by the skirt, Bess. We'll get him!' She flung herself to her knees and stopped sliding just at the edge of the old, thick ice. With a sweep of her strong young arm, she shot the end of her long muffler right into the clutching hands of the drowning boy. Involuntarily he seized it. He had been down once, and submersion in the ice-water had nearly deprived him of both consciousness and power to help save himself. But Nan drew him quickly through the shattered ice-cakes to the edge of the firm crystal where she knelt. "'We have him! We have him!' she cried in triumph. "'Give me your hand, boy. I won't let you go down again.' But to lift him entirely out of the water would have been too much for her strength. However, several men came running now from the stalled passenger train. The lighting of the electric sign had revealed to them what was going on upon the pond. The man who lifted the half-drowned boy out of the water was not one of the train crew, but a passenger. He was a huge man in a bearskin coat and felt boots. He was wrapped up so heavily, with his fur cap pulled down so far over his ears and face, that Nan could not see what he really looked like. In a great, gruff voice, he said, "'Well, now, give me a girl like you every time. I never saw the beat of it. Here, mister,' as he put the rescued boy into the arms of a man who had just run from a nearby house. "'Get him between blankets, and he'll be all right. But he's got the smart little girl to thank that he's alive at all.' He swung around to look at Nan again. Bess was crying frankly, with her gloved hands before her face. "'Oh, Nan, Nan,' she sobbed. "'I didn't do a thing, not a thing. I didn't even hang on to the tail of your skirt as you told me. I—I 
I'm an awful coward. The big man patted Nan's shoulder lightly. There's a little girl that I'm going to see here in Tilbury, he said gruffly. I hope she turns out to be half as smart as you are, sissy. Then he tramped back to the train that was just then starting. Nan began to laugh. Did you hear that funny man? she asked Bess. Do stop your crying, Bess. You have no reason to cry. You are not hurt. But, but you might have been drowned, too, sobbed her chum. I didn't help you a mite. Bother, exclaimed Nan Sherwood. Don't let's talk about it. We'll go home. I guess we've both had enough skating for tonight. Bess wiped away her tears and clung to Nan's hand all the way to their usual corner for separating. Nan ran home from there quickly and burst into the kitchen to find Momsey and Papa Sherwood in the midst of a very serious conference. "'What is the matter?' cried Nan, startled by the gravity of her father and the exultation upon her mother's face. "'What's happened?' "'A very great thing, Nan, honey,' said Momsey, drawing her daughter to her side. "'Tell her, Papa Sherwood.' He sighed deeply and put away the letter they had been reading. "'It's from Mr. Blake of Edinburgh,' he said. "'I can no longer doubt the existence of the fortune, my dears, "'but I fear we shall have to strive for it in the Scotch courts.' "'Oh!' cried Nan under her breath. "'Mr. Blake tells us here that it is absolutely necessary for us to come to Scotland, and for your mother to appear in person before the court there. The sum of money and other property willed to Momsey by her great-uncle is so large that the greatest care will be exercised by the Scotch judges to see that it goes to the right person. As your mother once said, we must throw a sprat to catch a herring. In this case we shall be throwing a sprat to catch a whale." For the amount of money we may have to spend to secure the fifty thousand dollars left by Mr. Hugh Blake of Emberon is small in comparison to the fortune itself. We must go to Scotland, finished Mr. Sherwood firmly, and we must start as soon as possible. End of chapter 8